Hello, my name is Alan Mohan. Welcome to this podcast, which is a mini-series on Young within the larger season of the quest. This is not a podcast on alchemy itself, a vast subject, but a more limited one, Young's relationship to alchemy and its significance to analytical psychology. In fact, the podcast will be divided into two, parts A and B. This is part A. Young's study did an enormous amount to breathe the spirit back into alchemy after the cold hand of the Western scientific enlightenment had extinguished its flame. He was a pioneer in reinterpreting the alchemical symbols into the language of archetypal myths, as well as analytical psychology, allowing them to live again. This was a terrific achievement and absorbed a great amount of his research time. He devoted to the subject of alchemy more than three volumes of his collected works, Volume 12, The Psychology of Alchemy, Volume 13, Alchemical Studies, Volume 14, Mysterium Conjunctionis, and part of Volume 9, Part 2, entitled Aeon. Together, these comprised thousands of pages, besides which he had unpublished material on the subject in plenty. The prima materia for this work was obtained via antique booksellers that were commissioned to scour Europe in search of alchemical manuscripts. Young became fascinated with this ancient art and along with Maria Louise von Franz began an immense work of studying and cross-referencing a huge number of alchemical texts. He was convinced it provided a missing link between the modern analytical psychology that he had created and the wisdom of the ancient world. For him, it was the language of the lost soul. Although deeply enigmatic, there was a key, and Young was destined, vocationally called, redemptively compelled, to find it as few others could. I am reminded of a saying of the Gnostic Redeemer, I wandered through worlds and generations, all the mysteries unlock. Alchemy seemed extinguished in the 19th and early 20th century. How could it possibly compete with the tremendous explanatory power and accomplishment of modern chemistry, physics and life sciences, which have in reality been able to unleash the immense powers in nature? The list of achievements of modern science is extraordinary and ongoing. We take them so for granted. Suffice it to say that modern science seemed to have buried alchemy. But the archetypal has a habit of being reborn. I'm reminded of a story in Burmese alchemical traditions, that is Burma, modern Myanmar in Southeast Asia. You may not be aware that alchemy has a long history in many parts of the world. It may have originated thousands of years ago in India and spread west to Egypt, then into Europe and Islam and was to have an intense flowering in the Middle and later European Middle Ages. By about the 4th century AD it was practised in China and also Burma, where it was popular from the 4th to the 11th centuries AD, among a particular sect, the Aries, and became practically a religious cult. It faded in the 12th century with the introduction of Buddhism, which frowned upon its magical and superstitious practices. For the Aries, the transmuting of lead into gold was but the first step in alchemy, which was followed by the obtaining of the stone of live metal, through which the possessor could fly in the air 
or dive underground and was invulnerable to wounding. The third stage was to create from the alchemical furnace certain metal compounds which had great magical properties, but they had to be absorbed by the whole body. In order to accomplish this, the adept swallowed these metals and then, with the help of a faithful pupil, he was buried in the earth for seven days, a temporary death, which would be permanent if he were in contact with the air during this period. At the end of this seven-day burial, a kind of cooking procedure in which the metals would transmutate throughout the body, he was released and jumped in the air as an initiate zoagui, that is, a complete alchemist. He then disappeared into the forest, living on practically nothing, having a superhuman body, being in perfect health until he died, or possibly lived forever, and being able to fly or go underground at will. That is, he transcended ordinary mortal life in this middle realm of humans and was a traveller in the upper and lower worlds. This vignette on folk traditions was written in the 1950s and later published by the Burmese Religious Affairs Department. The author, Maung Hiting Aung, interpreted this as an understandable search for prolonged youth, eternal life and a desire to transcend the limits of one's existence. Now, the alchemical traditions across the globe are full of miraculous stories. So are the Christian, for that matter, especially its central one that Christ was also buried and rose again. And this was an ultimately transformative act, not only for Christ, but for all humanity. It was Jung's achievement to place these and the world's mythologies, legends and fairy tales in the context of symbols of transformation in the collective unconscious, and which he observed in the dreams of himself and some of his patients. Jung became aware that there was an inner centre to the psyche with its entelechy, like a seed that is meant to grow into a tree, that is, the development of the psyche towards its wholeness, its own transformation from a lower into a higher form, from lead to gold, to use the alchemical metaphor. Transformation or spiritual rites of passage and experiences are crucial to this self-realisation. Alchemy was one expression of this, and by the time it flowered in the European Middle Ages, it was full of elaborate symbols that Jung was to interpret after his intense study, and which were concerned with how the deep psyche or soul wished to develop. It was the psyche's natural view of itself, expressed in metaphor and symbol. Despite Jung's encouragement for the West to maintain the link to its religious traditions, he increasingly knew that the alternative traditions that were pushed underground or eliminated by Christianity could hold deeper connection to the psyche and soul than Christianity itself. He was very aware of the psychological one-sidedness of Christianity, its repressive attitude to sexuality and the feminine, its splitting of good and evil its lack of incorporation of the shadow, its drive for perfection rather than wholeness, its emphasis on belief dictated by an outside force, church doctrine, its suppression of heresy and its hostility to enlightenment or visionary experiences unless they were in line with orthodoxy. The Catholic Church had ambivalent relations to alchemy, as indeed did the monarchs of Europe, 
at times been fascinated by it, in particular the possibility that unlimited gold might be manufactured by the alchemist, and at other times repressing or persecuting alchemists as wizards and charlatans. Many of the monastic orders of the Catholic Church, such as the Dominicans, forbade anything to do with it. One can imagine the isolated monk in his cell being a good candidate for initiation into the dark arts. Indeed, it was even sometimes argued that alchemy was compatible with Christianity, that Christ was the true lapis or stone, that the transubstantiation of the bread and wine and the mass into the body and blood of Jesus Christ was an alchemical event, promoting the transformation of the recipients and so on. However, those who studied the European alchemical texts would have been aware of the immense amount of pagan symbols, many of them pre-Christian, and many of its images seemed to be closer to witchcraft and sorcery than anything else. Nevertheless, despite repression, alchemy was to Orthodox Christianity as the dream is to consciousness, since it compensated for the Orthodox and dominant philosophies. Around 1925, Young had a number of dreams, which all revolved around a similar motif. Beside his own house there stood an annex, which was strange, because while he did not recognise it, it seemed that it must have always been there. One dream led him into this house, and he discovered a wonderful library, dating largely from the 16th and 17th centuries. Large folio volumes bound in pigskin lined the walls, among them books embellished with copper engravings and illustrations, with fascinating symbols that were not known to him. It later emerged that these were alchemical. In the dream of 1926, a peasant made a strong impression on him, saying, Now we are caught in the 17th century. Adam MacLean, in his Alchemy website, informs us that, quote, About 4,000 printed books were issued from the 16th through to the late 18th centuries, exploring alchemy from a multiplicity of different perspectives. Many thousands of manuscripts, handwritten works, letters, notes and commentaries exist in the libraries of Europe and North America, some beautifully illustrated with coloured images. Alchemy was thus, through the sheer volume of writings, influential throughout the early modern period. Its influence can often be seen in the works of writers, poets and artists of the time. The 17th century was a time when alchemy was about to decline, but was still practised, for example by Newton, the supposed paragon of enlightenment reasoning, who allegedly had a nervous breakdown during his alchemical experiments, perhaps poisoned by the alchemical metals. Also, a fire broke out in his office, and many of his occult writings and books were burned. Young, with his theories of archetypes, the collective unconscious, belief in the paranormal and so on, was easily thought of as a crank. Where was the evidence for his enormous speculation? Young was acutely conscious he needed an historical basis for what he was saying, as well as evidence from the contemporary psyche. In Memories, Dreams and Reflections he says, If I had not succeeded in finding such evidence... I would never have been able to substantiate my ideas. Therefore, my encounter with alchemy was decisive for me, as it provided me with the historical basis which I had hitherto lacked.
He writes, Light on the nature of alchemy began to come to me only after I read The Golden Flower. My late friend Richard Wilhelm sent me the text in 1928, a moment that was full of problems for my own work. Since 1913, I have been engaged in investigating the processes of the collective unconscious, and I had obtained results which struck me as difficult in more than one respect. Not only were they far removed from anything known to academic psychology, but they also went beyond the bounds of medical, purely personalistic psychology. It was an extensive phenomenology to which hitherto known categories and methods could no longer be applied. My results, which rested on the efforts of 15 years, seemed to be hanging in mid-air, for there was nothing anywhere to compare them with. Richard Wilhelm died shortly after giving the manuscript to Young. In Young's address at the memorial service of Richard Wilhelm, he said, quote, I received more from him than from any other man, unquote. He writes, I now began to understand what these psychic contents, the symbols such as mandalas that appeared in the dreams of his patients, what these psychic contents meant when seen in historical perspective. My understanding of their typical character, which had already begun with my investigation of myths, was deepened. The primordial images and the nature of the archetype took a central place in my researches, and it became clear to me that without history there can be no psychology, and certainly no psychology of the unconscious. A psychology of consciousness can, to be sure, content itself with material drawn from personal life. But as soon as we wish to explain a neurosis, we require an anamnesis, that is, a recalling, which reaches deeper than the knowledge of consciousness. And when in the course of treatment unusual decisions are called for, dreams occur that need more than personal memories for their interpretation. Unquote. Anamnesis is a term used medically when the patient recalls their own personal history leading to their neurosis. It's also used in other contexts, for example, the recalling of past lives. The secret of the golden flower has many alchemical references, but they are all in the service of the spiritual transformation process of the adept. In The Secret of the Golden Flower, the work is done by the circulation of the light via a meditation and yoga technique which unites the opposites of light and dark in the psyche. Quote, when the light is made to move in a circle, all the energies of heaven and earth, of light and dark, are crystallised. The energy and ideas become purified, the slag of darkness is expelled, and the experience of emptying takes place. After meditation and yoga of a hundred days, there is an experience of a different centre, a body beyond the body, after which there is experienced a pole of light, a yang principle, and a seed pearl develops, as if man and woman embraced and conceived a child. Quote, the circulation of the light is the epoch of fire, in the midst of primal transformation, the radiance of the light is the determining thing. 
the seed blossoms, the true creative formative energies emerge, which is to say the experience of light in the golden flower, are the true creative energies underlying all things. Individuals who undertake this path realise the destiny of humanity across the aeons. Unquote. Young notes that Chinese yoga philosophy bases itself upon the fact of this instinctive preparation for death as a goal. Richard Wilhelm, commenting on the secret of the golden flower, which he translated into German, was sure there had existed a movement which took this text very seriously and practised a form of yoga and meditation based upon it. Wilhelm comments, The followers of this method achieved, almost without exception, the central experience. Unquote. That is, the experience of the golden flower, the Tao. Why did the secret of the golden flower provide the light for Jung's understanding of Western alchemy? After all, it is a meditation, not an alchemical text. True, there are some alchemical references already noted, but they are a minor part of the work. The opening lines of Jung's extensive commentary on the secret of the golden flower indicate an answer. He quotes the text, If thou wouldst complete the diamond body with no outflowing, diligently heat the roots of consciousness and life, kindle light in the blessed country ever close at hand, and there hidden let thy true self always dwell. The diamond body is the aim of the work, the equivalent of the gold of the alchemists, but it is clearly the transformed human being that is referred to here. No outflowing alludes to the alchemical retort where the primary materia is being melted and mixed, but for Jung it was also the sealed container of therapy or the concentrated effort of personal and spiritual development. The heating that is raising into consciousness of the opposites is required. In Taoism, consciousness and life is Sing and Ming. In psychotherapy, consciousness and the unconscious. In alchemy, the melting of the metals, that is, calcination. The light in the blessed country, referred to in the text that Young quotes, is that of the higher self, which is the true self, often referred to as in the brow, that is probably referring to the sixth chakra. There is a circulatory movement of light through the meditator's subtle body that Jung compares to his discovery of mandalas as the symbols of the self. Finally, it is hidden because that which is referred to is nothing in the outer world, nor anything obvious at all. It is the mysterious but real experience of the transcendent within oneself. This short passage or poem condenses alchemical references with the spiritual experience of the East. If the meditation and yoga procedure is followed properly, then the light of heaven, the Tao, reveals itself. This is the secret of the golden flower. There is a container for this referred to as the germinal vesicle. Clearly inspired by the poetic references in the text, Jung continues, Quote, the beginning in which everything is still unity, and which therefore appears as the highest goal, lies on the floor of the sea in the darkness of the unconscious. In the germinal vesicle, life and consciousness, 
essence and life, his Sing and Ming, are still a unit, inseparably mixed like the seeds of fire in the refining furnace. Unquote. He notes the fire analogies. He says, I know a series of European mandala drawings in which something like a plant seed surrounded with membranes is shown floating in water and from the depths below, fire penetrating the seed makes it grow and causes the formation of a large golden flower from within the germinal vesicle. Young recognises that these images and symbols are referring to the process of alchemy in which heating, refining and transformation into higher forms takes place. Light emerges from darkness. Out of the lead of the water region grows the noble gold. The unconscious becomes conscious in the form of a process of life and growth. However, it is Hindu Kundalini Yoga, Young suggests, that affords a complete analogy. So it's not just the alchemical references, it is the spiritual traditions of the East, particularly in Kundalini Yoga, which offer a more complete model of how this transformation process works. The text of The Secret of the Golden Flower refers to a circular journey of the light, which for Jung is the sacred enclosure for the fixation and concentration. The sun wheel is activated and light circulates through the subtle body, and therefore Tao is realised. This circular movement activates, quote, all the light and dark forces of human nature, and with them all the psychological opposites of whatever kind they may be. That means nothing else than self-knowledge by means of self-incubation, unquote. Young suggests this is paralleled by the hermaphrodite image the uniting of male and female in alchemy, and therefore the uniting of male and female within oneself. He writes that, quote, the centre of gravity of the total personality shifts its position. It ceases to be in the ego, which is merely the centre of consciousness, and is located instead between the conscious and the unconscious. This new centre might be called the self. This is what is referred to in the text of The Secret of the Golden Flower as the diamond body, which is invulnerable to emotional entanglements and violent upheavals. In a word, they symbolise a consciousness freed from the world. This is a natural preparation for death and sets in after middle life. Our next podcast will be the second part of this subject of Young and Alchemy. I hope you can join me.